This is Michelle Ruff, the voice of Jill Valentine. And when I'm not stranded on the Queen Zenobia, I listen to the Crimson Head Elder podcast. Crimson Head Elder Podcast. I've always been obsessed with horror movies, so I did bring that, but it was a lightheartedness in the moments where you could have lightheartedness that I think was essential to developing Claire's character and kind of setting her apart from other female characters in the franchise. hearing Resident Evil 2, Resident Evil 2, Sherry, and I was like, what is this? And they actually informed me, and they didn't believe me <laughs> that I was in it. They're like, no, that's not you. <laughs> I was like, it is me. They're like, what's the name of it? I was like, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> they felt a lot of pressure from fans to reach out to me. With regard to Revelations 2? No, with regard to the remake. Oh wow, breaking news. Capcom did certainly feel pressured into at least extending contact. There is more to the story. Well, my partner would be Claire Redfield, right? Yes! <laughs> <laughs> you have to understand, like, the 15-year-old girl remained friends until I was in my 20s and now in my 30s. So, of course, there were some drinks along the way. <laughs> Outbreak. It was groundbreaking. They have no idea what we went through with that first game. Everything was new. So while it is a flawed game, I love it, and I would love to see more files come out for it because we recorded a ton. There's so much that never actually came out. Because I couldn't take the weight of lying about it anymore. I wanted to live my life openly and freely, and all the while that I was hiding my disability, I would still get jobs, but the moment I came out, so to speak, the phone stopped ringing. There's no other game that will ever be like Code Veronica because they really pushed the limits. The Dreamcast system for its time was phenomenal. It was an absolutely beautiful game. What's the policy for swearing on here? The Ashford siblings are so fucked up and twisted, <laughs> and it's wonderful.
Welcome to an extremely special Crimson Head Elder podcast with two of the most beloved actresses to grace the Resident Evil series over the last 20 years. One who has been with us for the most and best part of those years, voicing Claire Redfield in six game releases and the CGI film Degeneration. And the other, one of the youngest actresses to voice a video game character for Capcom and Toronto Unsung Hero Award winner. So, Alison Court, voiceover and motion caption director, iconic children's television actress and film producer, and of course, the voice of Claire Redfield for 15 years, and Lisa Jai, Sherry Birkin in the hearts of all fans across the world, theatre and independent film actress, Best Acting Ensemble Ovation Award nominee. It's a wonderful privilege and an absolute joy to host this exclusive interview at Crimson Head Elder. Guys, welcome. Thank you very much. <laughs> that was wonderful. Thank you. Cue the audience clapping in the distance. Yay! <laughs> <laughs> well, we're not that cheesy. I'm not going to put canned laughter or clapping on. Don't <laughs> Hi, Lisa. Hi, Court. How you doing? <laughs> I'm good. How are you? <laughs> good. I miss you. I miss you, too. Are you here now? You're in Toronto now, right? Yeah, girl. I'm on the down okay. floor right now. Mm-hmm. Okay, good. Hi, ladies. Hi. How are you doing? Good, thanks. Hi. How are you, Erin? How are you, Erin? Hanging in there, keeping dry. It's storming, so, yeah. Oh, dear. <laughs> Where are you? In Pennsylvania. This is like a real international call. Oh, yeah. Well, the questions we got were from all over the world. We should be doing this from Il Fernello with a bottle of wine. We <laughs> should. That's what I wanted to do, but I was like, uh, yeah. court is so busy. So tomorrow I have the recording session all day and then a camp with the Cub Scouts for the weekend. Ah, so going from a session right into like Cub Scouts, it's like, ugh. which means no alcohol allowed because kids will be in my care. You're really good at that though. You're so I have to drink tonight is what I'm saying. Well, call me up after the podcast. We'll see. <laughs> and incidentally, uh, Paul, I wasn't joking. I love it's it's a gin liqueur and it's got these little bits of silver in it and it's called Unicorn Tears. And another fan from uh, the UK, he's a huge Resident Evil fan, and he actually sent me a bottle. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah, he's awesome. My fans send me things to sign. If you hadn't said he was from England, we were worried it might be one of our staff members. Uh, let's just say got a little bit overexcited when he knew both of you guys were on the podcast. So we had to make sure we kept him well, well, well away from the podcast. <laughs> it's okay if he wants to send us booze. Okay. <laughs> I want unicorn tears. I want yeah. unicorn tears. And Aaron is the Oracle Dragon, which is a lovely name. Really beautiful. So George and the Oracle Dragon. Paul, I think you... Um, you got the shitty end of the stick for names. <laughs> <laughs> you, have, you have George. George. And the, no unicorn tears for George. I wanted to ask, actually, of all the questions we got in, there was only one that I kind of had to self-edit. <laughs> well, we got one question that said, I think Alison is, is a very, very beautiful lady. Would she do a belly dance? In brackets, she said, <laughs> she'll know what I mean. So I wasn't sure if it was a complete oddball. <laughs> Or if, if did that relate? Did that relate to a to a character? No, it's <laughs> yeah. He's a. I do know who you're talking about, and he always makes me laugh. But he's done drawings of what he thinks I look like um, as <laughs> oh dear. as a jungle girl in a bikini getting hypnotized by a snake. I find it very very fun and amusing. So yeah. I think he's adorable. 
so obviously so pleased and privileged to have you guys i'll get straight into it there's myself george trevor and the oracle dragon from the site we're going to be asking questions alternately that have come into the site that have been posted by your fans all over the world. I must say we've never had such a huge response from all across the globe. And we really have, I'm afraid, had to be very, very strict in the, in the number of questions that we've asked. Otherwise, we'd be here all evening. So if your question wasn't asked, don't worry. You never know. We may be doing another one in the future. Right. First question is from Vito from Mexico. And he asks, Lisa and Alison, how did you come to know of the Resident Evil series? Was it the first time you had heard of this franchise when you were cast to star in Resident Evil 2? Hola, ¿cómo estás? ¿Cómo estás, México? Te quiero mucho, cantidad. I want Alison to answer these first because I feel like I bowed down to her. <laughs> no, don't, don't bow down. Um, <laughs> I, so, to be honest, I had never heard of the franchise, and actually, when we did the recording, our contracts didn't even stipulate the name of what we were actually doing. Looking back, it said adventure game or something. Yes, yes. Yeah. <laughs> it wasn't until Toy Fair the following year when I heard myself screaming from a different booth. <laughs> And that's when I got to see what it really was. And wait, this is the second installment of this really popular video game franchise. Yeah. And prior to that, I had no idea of survival horror video games. How about you, Lisa? I had the similar experience. I did not know what I was getting into. I just knew that the project sounded great. And at that time, they put on, you know, a production title called Adventure Game. And that was the first I heard of it. And then... I went in, did the session, came out, not knowing what a big piece of gaming history I was to become a part of. And then years later, I would hang around like um, all of my friends who are, are really into games. And I kept hearing Resident Evil 2, Resident Evil 2, Sherry. And I was like, what is this? And they actually informed me and they didn't believe me <laughs> that I was in it. They're like, no, that's not you. <laughs> I was like, it is me. They're like, what's the name of it? I was like, I don't know. I was in it. <laughs> So, yeah, I had a similar experience. Oh, wow. Ah! Wait, let me go. Easy, easy there. I'm not a zombie. You're safe now. <laughs> Leon, come in. I found the girl, and I've cleared the wreckage that was blocking the corridor. Got it. My name's Claire. What's yours? Sherry. Do you know where your parents are? They both work at the Umbrella Chemical Plant, near the city limits. The chemical plant? Then what are you doing here? My mom called and told me to go to the police station because it was too dangerous to stay at home. From the look of things, I'd say she was probably right. But it's dangerous here as well. You'd better come with me. But there's something out there. I don't know what it is, but I saw it. Much larger than any of those zombies. And it's coming after me. What was that? That's what I was telling you about. It's here. Sherry, wait. And this ties with the questions from Vosk from Mexico and Showhost from Ontario, Canada. All would like to know, 
How did you find the very first experience working with Capcom Japan figureheads such as Hideki Kamiya and Shinji Mikami? And can you remember any particular interesting, challenging, or funny anecdotes from the first recording session? This was many years ago, obviously, but I do remember that I think it was on my second recording day, not my first, but my second. And I remember these Japanese gentlemen, and they were taking pictures of behind the scenes photos and stuff, and very polite, very reserved, very respectful. So my experience was that they were very lovely, very quiet, very conservative, very reserved, and they were taking pictures. That was a little fun behind the scenes. It was just all positive and all very great. So I could build on that.、Mm-hmm. And at the time, it was we would be in the recording studio, and then in the control room, there's a big glass window. We would、yeah. have the recording engineer and our voice director, Susan Hart, and then this group of like probably five members of Capcom. Would come filtering in, and they'd sit in the back row. And、yeah. every line that we would record, there would be this long pause. Everything would go silent, and you would see them all clustered together, and they would be talking,、mm-hmm. talking, talking for、mm-hmm. like five minutes after each line. And then you'd see this nod, and then our director would be like, <laughs> "Okay, so next line." <laughs> and- <Yes. laughs> so it was a very surreal recording session because we really didn't get to interact very much directly、yes. with the from Capcom, but I do remember Camille in that session. Camille, who designed the game, yeah, he was probably the quietest of everybody. He's so unassuming. He looks like Ichiro、mm. Suzuki, the、mm. baseball player,、um, mm-hmm. but with glasses. I have a massive crush on him. Like, <laughs> <laughs> oh, so now we know why you've been in the series for so long. <laughs> yeah, no, he didn't. No, I, I, yeah, I was married to a completely different guy on that team. <laughs> so many stories, so little time. How sad. It was a strange experience initially, and to what Lisa was saying, when they took some photos behind the scenes,、mm-hmm. they would actually come in with a video camera. Yes. So they would actually film our faces. And we had to go through English vowels. They filmed us doing A E I O U, and then we had to do the Japanese vowels and do the A E U A O. This was for them to give to the animators, yes,、mm-hmm. so that they could animate properly to how our faces moved with what、mm-hmm. we were saying. I wonder、mm-hmm. if that was quite groundbreaking for that time. Obviously, we all know about mocap now. You'd may know more about this than me, Alison, being a mocap director for Outbreak. Yeah, I think it was incredibly ambitious, and as it turns out, when you look at the animation, I mean, it doesn't look like it was actually applied, because、uh, <laughs> later on, when we were doing the stuff for PlayStation Two for Outbreak, it was so frustrating for everybody on board because we were capturing at like 130, because it was more than 120 frames per second, but we were getting so much data, and it would look beautiful, and then for the in-game action, they'd actually have to strip it down to three frames. And that was nobody's fault within Capcom. It was simply the the limits of the engine at the time, and everybody there was really trying to push things. So, when they were filming our our faces, it was because their animators wanted to do the best job possible. And then, you know, inevitably, it would go to the people who would put it into the game, the programmers, and you'd work with the stuff the best that you could. 
Okay. Now, Hank Foreman, who says he had to make an account just for this opportunity, so he joined our website just because of this interview. I hope he's going to stay with us and, and not bugger off after the interview's finished. But um, he wants to ask Alison and Lisa, how does it feel to be associated with the likes of Metal Gear Solid, Final Fantasy, and Castlevania as one of the most famous franchises of all time? I'm only going to answer this question if Frank remains loyal to Crimson Head Elder. <laughs> it's, 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 yes. I see. it's Hank. Hank is a, a Twitter friend, a lovely young man, the best researcher I have ever encountered oh. in my life. Oh. Oh, well, so good at finding information. So anybody out there hiring researchers or uh, if you guys need someone, he, he knows stuff, he remembers stuff. And he can find stuff so fast. We'll definitely look after him at the site. And thanks for joining, Hank. And yeah, we hope we hope you stay with us. I think he would absolutely stay with you. <laughs> and he, also, he actually also put in brackets. And for Alison, was there any attempt to add a comfy couch reference to any Resident Evil game? <laughs> it is so surreal to be. Where, okay, so going back to that time when my friends didn't believe that I was in this <laughs> video game because it's such a big thing, and then. Final Fantasy was all the rage, but like, even when Final Fantasy came out, people would still reference like Resident Evil 2 is the best. It's very surreal, and the fact that the fans have made it what it is, is just like, it is very touching. It's, I can't believe that I was part of something so universally big and so universally uniting people across the world. It's, it's a nice feeling. Jerry, I've been looking everywhere for you. I was so worried. We've got to go now, honey, okay? If we stay here, that monster will find us. Let's go. No! I won't! What's the matter? <laughs> Don't you trust me? It's not that, Claire. It's because of my daddy. He's over there. I heard him call my name. Daddy must have been attacked by the monsters! I have to help him! Wait, Sherry! Don't go alone! Sherry! Sherry! Sherry, are you okay? Did you find your dad? Yes, I'm okay. But I couldn't find him. But I did find something else for you. Here! Here's another! Thanks, sweetie. Now why don't you come over here? I want you to stay with me. hole anymore. But don't worry, I'll find another way. I can take care of myself. Wait, Sherry, come back. Sherry! Sherry! Did we hear from Allison about how she feels being compared to Oh, of course. Thanks, Lisa. No, we did. I'm so sorry. That's okay. I'm just <laughs> crying over here in the corner. That's all right. <laughs> uh... It's been amazing. It's been um, 
how do you compare that? Like, what else could yeah. we possibly compare it to? It's a phenomenal privilege to have such a dedicated, dedicated and loyal fan base out there who, despite 20 years passing, remain steadfast in their appreciation for what we did originally. And it's work that we didn't even know the um, the fan base at the time or how important what we were working on would be to them. So to have people rally so hard and kick up a fuss when we're not respected, I guess, by the, the game company would be the way that some fans have put it or not at least approached to come back or whatever it might be. It's just all I feel is absolute gratitude. Yeah. And to answer the question about the big comfy couch reference, yes, <laughs> mm. in Code Veronica. In Code Veronica, they had a line when Steve and Claire are on, uh, I think they're on the plane. They finally, they think they're actually getting out before the monster attacks. And at one point, Steve was going to say he's going to eat a big steak or something. And Claire says, yeah, I can't wait to get back home and relax on my big comfy couch. They cut the line oh, out. Oh, my God. So they put it in. I did record that line. I did record that line. Wow. Well, well done, <laughs> Hank, because I, I, I thought it was maybe nothing more than just a throwaway little joke when he said that. Um, hats off to Hank. You actually recorded that line. Wonderful. I did. I did. And they didn't use it. <laughs> wow. What was wrong? Oh, nothing. Just a giant cockroach that had to be stepped on. What's happening? I don't know. The plane just changed direction on its own. It's flying in autopilot mode. I can't switch over to manual control. My apologies, but I cannot let you escape now. <laughs> Alfred, cross-dressing freak. Okay, ladies, have you played any of the Resident Evil games? And if so, which is your favorite and why? This is from Vito. And he also says, which ties with a series of questions from Biohazard Valkyrie. Do you have any favorite character or games from the series? And if you had to choose one as a co-op partner, who would that be? Well, my partner would be Claire Redfield, right? Yes! (laughs) (laughs) Okay, I am really bad at video games. Really bad. So the closest I came to playing Resident Evil is watching my friends play it and showing them how to play. (laughs) That's sometimes the best way. Yeah, because they can unlock a lot of like stages and stuff, and they're like, (laughs) they're like, see, this is Sherry. We have to save her. And I, I learned through my friends playing it. I never owned. My mom never bought us any of those game things. You know what I mean? And so I would have to go over to my friends and learn that way. This is a tricky area for me, because initially, when the game came out, when Resident Evil 2 came out, my boyfriend at the time, um, we went to Blockbuster Video, sad face, because they no longer exist. Oh, they were the best. That's a whole other podcast to talk about (laughs) the absence of the ability to go in and how how important it was during formative years to go into a video store and kind of just peruse the aisles. Yeah, and and just read the books like they were books, yeah. Yes! Exactly. Anyway, I digress. So we rented a PlayStation and got the game and I lay in bed next to him while he played the game. Mm -hmm. And it was amazing and terrifying. And it was the first time I ever heard him scream like a girl. (laughs) So that was a fabulous experience. 
Um, <laughs> so I'm a little bit partial to Resident Evil 2, the original, because it was a whole new experience. We'd never had something like that before. And growing up as a huge fan of horror movies and horror books, too. Yeah. Uh, this was fabulous to be a part of. So all of the things that a lot of game players complain about in terms of the fixed camera, the loading time, uh, things like that, I actually loved because I thought they were very, um, they were very Hitchcockian in that mm-hmm. they, they lock the player in place and they make the player feel helpless and that adds to the, the terror feeling. Mm-hmm. So that was actually a really good use of the game engine limitations. killed William. I'll never forgive you for that. Wait! I've just prepared a sample of the G-Virus. And this time, no one will take it from me. This is the most significant piece of research my husband has ever left in my hands. Stop it! Sherry's in serious trouble. William implanted her with his embryos. There's no telling when they'll pupate. And if that happens, then Sherry won't... won't... What? William. William. You're alive. William is still alive. Sherry. Tell me what I need to know. How can I save Sherry? I have detailed information. Everything you need to know to prepare the antidote is right here. Save my daughter. And tell her I'm sorry I wasn't a better mother. Tell her I love her. Sherry. Annette. So I am partial to Resident Evil 2. I would also say that there are aspects of Code Veronica that I think are incomparable. Like there's there's no other game that will ever be like Code Veronica because they really push the limits. I'm so pleased to hear you say that because I think sometimes for no other reason than the fact that it's not like a named title in terms of Resident Evil 1, 2, 3 or 4, Code Veronica sometimes doesn't quite, not necessarily get the credit, but doesn't quite get the exposure it deserves. But I love Code Veronica and I was very keen to know about your your, your experiences with that game, but we can come on to that at a later date. Yeah, no, I would just say that Code Veronica, I got to say the Dreamcast system for its time was phenomenal. Um, and it's unfortunate that things did not work out. Yeah. But it it was an absolutely beautiful game, and the uh, the gameplay, the just pushing the bar in terms of the the action and the quality of the visuals and the intensity. And hello, Alfred. <laughs> like, or like you know, like the Alexia and the the Ashford siblings are so. Hold on. What's the policy for swearing on here? As long as it's the artists we're allowed. We're not allowed to swear, but you guys are. <laughs> <laughs> Pardon my my potty mouth, but the the Ashford siblings are so fucked up and twisted, <laughs> and it's wonderful. It's, yeah. It was just great, because who would have thought that they would have pushed it there? So it's a standalone game, and I, I think it's fabulous, and I'm really glad I got to be a part of it. <laughs> interfere with my operation what are you talking about you let yourself be captured so you could lead your people to this base 
I have no idea what you're babbling about. You don't fool me. I am Alfred Ashford, commander of this base. Oh? You must be one of Umbrella's lower-level officers if you're in command of a backwater base like this one. How dare you! The Ashford family is among the world's first and finest. My grandfather is one of the original founders of Umbrella Inc. Now tell me, why have you attacked this installation? Attacked? Shortly after you arrived, my base was attacked. You must have informed your people of its location. I still don't follow you. I really don't know anything about that. Unacceptable! How can you deny it? My base has been destroyed. And thanks to you, the experimental T-Virus was released, creating countless zombies and monsters. The one I'm most proud of, though, I have to say, would be Outbreak. But again, that's a conversation for a different day. And yeah, who would be my, my tag team mate? Well, I think there's a lot of merit in terms of Claire tagging with uh, Sherry. Because Sherry, not only does she have youth on her side, she's also yeah. got super smart parents. You know that she's brilliant. And she also happens to be carrying all that stuff inside her. Right. <laughs> Sherry's unconscious. I have the antidote. If I give it to her... Not now. Come on, Cherry, wake up. Wake up. Please wake up. Claire? Where am I? It worked. Oh, Sherry, you're going to be okay. Thanks, Claire. It's over. No. I have to find my brother. You're right. This is just the beginning. We were very lucky to interview Layla Johnson, who voiced Alexia Ashford. And it's rare for me to come across voice actors that don't play video games like, like herself and have no connection with the video game industry, but who have connected so strongly and, and so passionately with their character. And she described that relationship in similar terms. It's great to hear you talk about the Ashfords as well, because, yeah, that was a very peculiar relationship, to say the least. It sure was. And just to, to throw it out there, if we do do a podcast about Code Veronica, that was the only game where I actually got to record with some of the other actors. Oh, wow. Yeah. I was about to say we should do a podcast with Claire and Alexia. That would be astounding. That would be like, amazing. Yeah. Uh, get I Peter mean, in there and Michael and like a, a bunch of the other guys. That would be awesome. Yeah, I can hear all the fans of Steve crying out in anguish that you didn't mention his name. No, Steve, why? Okay, people, calm now. She made her choice. Claire <laughs> <laughs> Redfield, hold it right there. We meet each other at last. A pity I must say goodbye so soon. I am Alexia Ashford. For the pride of the Ashford family, I will kill you. going on? Uh. Oh, Steve! A secret door! Uh, after her! Are you okay? I'm fine. 
It's just a scratch. This must be... What? No! Wait a second. What just happened? So there never was an Alexia after all. You mean, he thinks he's two people? Okay, that's it. Let's get out of here. Right. So Albert Wesker187 from Texas, he's a staff member of our site. He's a huge fan of yours. So much so that for your own sake, ladies, we had to keep him a little bit far from the <laughs> podcast. I think he's, he's currently taking a cold shower. <laughs> Yeah, his sentiment is very sincere. He says, first, let me start by saying this is an honor and a privilege to have these two legends of the industry on the upcoming podcast. These questions for both artists will be helpful for budding actors. What kind of acting training did both of you receive starting on in your careers? What for you is the most difficult part of being a professional actress? And a question also asked by Ashley Vala. What advice would you offer to aspiring actresses? That's deep. These are deep questions. So, hi, Albert. Basically, it was all sort of intuitive acting until I was 21. And then I decided to get training. I don't know. It was just a deep gut feeling. I just thought I couldn't rely on my intuition anymore to guide me. And theater has always interested me. And so I headed to New York and studied at the Stella Adler studio there for a summer. And then I moved back to Toronto and thought I was not going to be acting anymore. Tried to give up on it. But then I ended up loving it too much, and I went to study full-time and accepted a scholarship at the Stella Adler Academy in Los Angeles. So my training is there. But, oh, before I went to Stella Adler, I studied at the Second City in Toronto, and I think that has been so imperative to, like, my voice work and my stage work and, honestly, in my personal life. And... Albert goes on to ask, what for you is the most difficult part of being a professional actress? Paying my bills. Preach, is it sure? Come on. Preach, um, sing it, baby. Right? Sing it. I know. Because it's- people have no idea. So paying my bills is the hardest thing about being an actress. And keep on keeping on the path is the hardest thing. It's fine and dandy at the time. But then what about the spaces in between jobs? It's artistry, isn't it? And you tend to forget sometimes it's actually it's a professional job for people and it's paying a living. Yes, exactly. It is paying a living. I have never had the liberty to just rely on acting to pay my bills full time. I haven't been that fortunate and I'm not bitter about it because I love acting so much. I would do it for free anyway, depending on what the project is. But I've always had to have a survival job. So that would be the hardest part. And then you get into this mind frame of, oh, my gosh, I have an audition that came up tomorrow. Who's going to cover my shift here? That is constantly a balancing act. And I think this ties into the third question of what I would advise to an aspiring actress is to take this into account. If you think that you're going to do this full time, you have to really weigh in the realities that there are 
hundreds of thousands of other actresses vying for that one job that you're all out to get. So take that into account, money and how you're going to sustain yourself. And then when you, if you love it as much as I think, Allison, I love it, you're going to do it no matter what. You're just going to be one of those creative, crazy artists and you're going to find a way to do it. Also, what's really good if it's in your hometown, the second city, that is a really good jumping point. I recommend that for anybody, the second city. Yeah. Initially, how did you get into acting? Oh, my gosh. That's such a a good question. (laughs) I was really, yeah, I was really young, just like you. um, And I started dancing lessons. And I think it grew from there. And then my mom took me. I always wanted to be in a toothpaste commercial. I don't know why, (laughs) but I was like, I want to be in this toothpaste commercial. My mom took me to like, you know, those like little casting directing workshops that they have for kids. And it was Margot Lane. Oh, then, my God. Yeah. Yeah. You remember her, right? Yeah. I remember Margot Lane. Absolutely. Exactly. So I learned and it was like this cute little Saturday morning class where you learn to like stand on the slate and slate your name. You learn like the basics of an audition. And then she actually referred me to my lifelong agent, Sandra Newton. And that's how I started. Sandy took me on and the rest is history. Uh, training. She um, doesn't need any training. She's perfect. <laughs> <laughs> so I was always into dance and music and kind of just wanting to be the center of attention when I was a little kid. I I found out at my ballet school, my parents were told that there was an art school like Fame opening up <laughs> for kids grade four to grade eight. And would I like to audition? Of course, I said yes. So I went and auditioned, got a spot. It's called Claude Watson School for the Arts. And to this day, it's a phenomenal arts and academic school. And again, still paid for by tax dollars. Um, So it's a merits-based school. You have to audition to get in. They were this talent pool of, of young kids and they would get calls from producers for television. So I got a call and went to an audition and loved it. The boy who I was auditioning with, his father happened to be a photographer for professional acting. They were with the Edward G. Agency, which was Sandy Newton's agency. So the father said, your daughter's so great. She should uh, meet my son's agent. She should totally do this. So that's how I got to meet Sandy Newton, the same agent that Lisa has, by the way. See, this is okay. This is why people around the world thinks that think that everybody in Canada knows each other. Because <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it is. We have to tell you that this is just like a once in a million like <laughs> partnership friendship. It wasn't until probably late teens, like I basically, I happened to be at the right place at the right time, so I got a lot of work. And then it wasn't until my late teens when I started to realize that, wow, I'm starting to meet actors who have really been training for this. They really wanted it. They haven't had the opportunities that I've had. I need to step up my game. I really started to take my work more seriously and look at it in a different way. So my own approach to it changed. And to talk about advice for aspiring actors... Take whatever classes that you want to take. Uh, if it's a pay in full first situation and if they're promising you some sort of result at the end, uh, you might want to Google Trump University before you buy into that class. <laughs> um, 
I would say follow your heart, pursue your passion. And there's a difference between just wanting to to do this because this is what your heart says you need to do and wanting to be famous. If you want to be famous, well, you can either go to L.A. or you could just do something absurd and put it on YouTube and hope that you get a, a million likes. But if you are a passionate artist, London is a great place. New York is absolutely fabulous. Those who are more uh, faint of heart, like me, there are other places that you can go. It's a different speed, a different tempo. You're not going to be super famous, but you can certainly make a living and enjoy what you do. I made some serious choices in life, and I chose to stay in Toronto because of certain other things that I put value on. And I'm not saying that wanting to be famous is a bad thing either. You just have to figure out who you are, what makes you tick, and follow the right path to that. Either way, you need to be good at what you do. And when it comes to voice acting in particular, I cannot emphasize it enough. Listen. Listen to people around you. Listen to the professionals. Listen to what's actually on television. What kind of voices are being recorded and how are they performing? What is out there and what's being hired? Who is making money at this? Well, what is it about them that makes them get the jobs? Then listen to the feedback when you do it and what people tell you. Then listen to yourself. You need to get in front of a mic, and a mic actually nowadays means that little handy-dandy mobile device in your hand. Stick it in front of your face. Start to record your voice. Listen back. Notice how you thought you were doing five different voices, but they actually all sound the same. Yeah. And that's when you start to seek out other advice in terms of how to change your voice, where to pitch it, different techniques you can utilize. But you really need to focus on your voice and what you're actually producing. Because how we hear ourselves in our head, completely different from how you actually sound yes. on a recording. So true. <laughs> Allison is so humble. I actually tried to get into Claude Watson. So like her training is extensive. They did not accept <laughs> it. They only accept the cream of the crop in that school. And on top of it, to stay in their program, you have to have like solid grades. And between being at the studio or being on set, like somehow you managed to do all that. So I applaud you. And I think you're just being a little bit humble. I know your fans will be particularly appreciative of such personal, such insightful observations that you've taken along the years because a lot of the questions we've had have been preceded by sentiment of your fans saying how much you've inspired them. So to actually then hear, hear you, Lisa and Alison, give advice with such detail and consideration drives me to very quickly mention Chrissy. She said here, Alison Court has been a big inspiration in my life. In my younger teen years, I was into voice acting all because of her. I even got an expensive mic for that crystal clear audio. Her voice is just so unique and soothing. I really aspire to find that in my own voice. And after time, I did. So I have a huge thank you for her. And that's from Chrissy. Chrissy, thank you so much for, one, wanting to contribute a question to this podcast, for continuing to follow my career and be interested and uh, for sharing your thoughts on the whole thing. I am honored to have inspired you in such a way. I'm so sorry that you spent so much money on all that technical stuff. <laughs> well, she, she, she's from Canada, so maybe she can bill you. <laughs> yeah, or I'll take it off your hands. Like. <laughs>
it's a tough nut to crack, but don't give up on yourself. And the main thing is to practice what you do. And it's never been, ironically, it's never been cheaper to actually get your own demo recorded and to do the legwork and the research and the practice and the training so that you can have a decent demo to upload to places like Voice Bank or if you are an Actra member, an even better site is the voice.actraonline.ca if you're going to be a Canadian voice actor. What I'm saying to people is use your home equipment, use what you've got to get a demo up and out there. It's not, it's not a threat to us in terms of us as actors, because here's the, here's the idea that people need to embrace. As an actor, if I'm looking at it, me against all of my other voice actors, I'm an idiot because nobody brings a production to Toronto just because of one actor. It just doesn't work that way. And if you're wanting to solicit long-term contracts with companies from all over the world, you need to have a very deep and a wide talent pool. So it matters to me that my fellow actors are super good. Yeah, I might not get the job this time. One of them might get it. That's not a bad thing. It's a good thing when producers have choices. I'm kind of going to echo on the same vein as Allison said, the fact that we're living in such a wonderful, technological savvy age, it makes it so accessible to break in to the industry where there was yeah. only like a select few. I agree. You get your equipment. I wouldn't spend hundreds of thousands of dollars or even thousands of dollars on it. Get your demo out there, upload it to voice bank, and then like you can break in easier that way. All right, this question comes from Crimson Elder, and he's from Wales. He states, I cannot wait to hear from these two legends. A huge thanks to both Allison and Lisa for taking part in this interview. Lisa, you were 15 years old when you recorded your lines for Capcom. That would make you the youngest voice actor to portray a Resident Evil character. I am curious as to the process that Capcom took for someone so young. Was it a fun experience for you at such an age? I bet you were very popular with your friends at the time. Hi, Crimson. Thank you for the question. We wouldn't be quote-unquote legends, and I'm humbled by that title you've bestowed on me and my colleague. Thank you. It was an absolute riot of a time. It was so fun doing it again because it was under like um, a production title. I didn't know what I was getting into, but it was so much fun. And it was also a test to my acting chops when I had to go there, go to dark places. I know I struggled like a couple minutes because it's scary to go to these dark places, you know, Mm. and it was just a fun time. So then it comes out and I still assume that this is called adventure game. I'm keeping my ears open, listening for adventure game. And remember I wasn't a gamer. Mm. And so how I came to hear about it, all of my girlfriend's boyfriends and they're like, yeah, Resident Evil 2. Da, 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 da. And then I hear Sherry Birkin. I was like, no, that's not the title. And I told you they didn't believe me. So at that time, it didn't really hit me okay. how big this is years after years with the reception that it has now and having you guys showing me all this love 25 years later. That is a very joyous experience just 15 at the time so it must have been quite daunting no um 
I know that it was an audition that I had to go through a couple audition processes, and it was the project that I really wanted. Up until that point, I had never done anything like mature mm. like this, and I thought it would be the best bridge into like you know establishing myself as more of an adult voice because up until then I was just like doing the baby voices and <laughs> stuff like that, and so this was a really good bridge, and I really wanted the job. No, I wouldn't say it was dancing because I wanted it so bad. Claire, you came back. I can't believe the man who developed the G virus is actually her father. What's wrong, Claire? It's nothing. But I think I found a way out of here. We should be able to find some place safe if we can just make it out of town. But don't worry, I'll protect you. I promise. But you have to make sure you don't leave my side. <sighs> my stomach—it hurts. Don't worry, you'll be fine. Come on, let's go. Claire, my stomach—my stomach hurts. <sighs> Hang in there, Sherry. Her forehead's burning up. I've got to hurry before the embryos pupate. JC Wesker from Bristol, my own city in England. Lisa, Sherry Birkin is a 12-year-old girl and has something of a tragic origin story. Not only is she caught up in a zombie outbreak, but also her own father, William, having injected himself with the G-virus, is now in pursuit of Sherry. And the reason he's doing this, it's because he's trying to find a host who's compatible for G-embryo implantation. So, JC Wesker asks, how aware were you of such plot intricacies at the time of recording your performance? And how did you manage to find a beautiful balance of emotions leading to a character who we genuinely want to protect? Thank you for that question. It's a beautiful question. I think because of my age, they protected those sort of details, especially mm. embryo injecting. <laughs> and this is actually the first I've really come to know of it. So no, I did not know of the intricacies. And I think it was smart of them to keep that from me. Because if it got that deep in the studio, I could have more dwelled on like, oh, this is so dark, instead of delivering the performance. I see your point that had they gone into that detail, because we as fans are always curious in terms of concept art you're given, and we adore these long biographies, and one of the reasons I connected with Resident Evil was the fact that, that some of these characters have biographies that are as deep and as interesting as, say, people who are fans of soap operas. That's right. So it's interesting to me that actually had they given you the sort of detail maybe I as a fan had wished you'd had, maybe are you saying you may have overthought your performance? Definitely. Not only overthought, I think I would have held back because knowing all those details, it's like, it's like the human condition. If this was something that happened in my own life, it's like, are we going to talk about it as, as truthfully as it would have been, you know? So I think Susan Hart, the voice director did an amazing job of conveying like the, the tempo and the urgency of me to get away from him yeah. um, without, without losing anything from the performance does that answer yeah. the question yeah definitely yeah J just enough to get that performance from you without burdening you down yeah yeah it was hard there was a couple of times where I actually the tape would be over and I would have to cry real tears because it was so sad oh 
Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. Can I interject here? This is something that a lot of people don't know about, Lisa, but I remember when I was working on the game and um, our engineer told me that Lisa was going to be doing Sherry and was talking about just how Lisa had this ability to cry on cue. And ever since she was little, from the first time she started acting, like she just had this innate ability to cry. And it's a skill that very few kid actors actually possess. Uh, so that was one of the talents that really... Wow. Susan said that, Allison? It was our engineer, our recording engineer. Oh, yeah. really? Oh, that's the Yeah. Thing. It's a talent that is hard to find, and I think that is what people have noticed. Because Lisa wasn't an adult putting on a pinchy, fake mm. kid yeah. voice. Yeah. yeah. But she also had an emotional depth to her that kid actors often don't have. I was surprised when Crimson Elder pointed that out, that you were so young. I'm not suggesting that it sounded like an adult doing some... No, kids I know. Voice. No, as Alison says, the depth of the portrayal, I can't wait to play Resident Evil 2 again and to actually listening to your dialogue for the first time now that you, you know, had that ability as well with the more emotional deliveries. Mm-hmm. It's wonderful to know now. Yeah, I remember being emotionally exhausted at the end of the day. It drains you, you know? So thank you for that compliment. Thank you so much. Thank you, Allison. You're so sweet. Uh, Mom! (laughs) Mom! Sherry, you have to escape. I know I've been a terrible mother, but I still love you. Forgive me. Sherry, we have to go now. Alright, this question is actually one of mine. (laughs) I said, Two wonderful ladies with great love from all fans around the world. It's a pleasure to have them join us and sharing us with their personal and professional experiences. Question is, did you guys have an opportunity to hang out during the making of Resident Evil 2? Thank you, Oracle. That is such a wonderful question. Actually, no, we didn't. We were kept separate. But I knew Allison was playing Claire Redfield, and I've always looked up to her. She might get embarrassed by me saying this because she's so humble, but she was always like this little legend, eh? You would hear whispers of her in the studios, like, Allison Court is here, Allison Court is here. And then when we went on to do Mr. Dress Up, which is like this national treasury of a show here, there's such a notoriety about this wonderful child actress. So unfortunately, I didn't get to record with my friend. I only knew my friend was going to be there. And I was so happy that my friend was playing Claire Redfield, the one who comes and helps me and save me. I think it actually even added to the lines. I think it helped in a way. In my mind, I was imagining you and her in the studio. And you just run up to her and start hugging her. Claire! Claire! <laughs> The second part of the question is, how did you two find each other after all this time apart? Did Allison yell Sherry and did you yell Claire and then embraced? Oh my goodness. Okay, so there is a picture of us on Twitter. I am a true believer in like the stars aligning and everything. So I had just gotten back from Los Angeles and my friend was in town from Los Angeles. And I was like, you know, there's these actor awards. Let's go. 
And another good friend of ours, Julie Lemieux, she won an award for Best Voice Actress of the Year for a show that Allison is directing. And she's like, thank you to my voice director, Allison Court. And I smacked my date next to me. I smacked him. And I was like, Allison Court, that's my friend. That's my buddy. I was like, is she here? We got to find her. It was the after party. And I was like, I want to see Allison. I want to see Allison. I bumped into Julie, walked around. And then it was like literally the end of the night. And I threw the crowd. I saw bodies moving. And then I saw this beautiful radical dress on. It was so beautiful. And then this beautiful face. And we literally saw each other through people like dancing in the middle. And it was literally both of us screaming at the same time. And I just ran up to her (laughs) and we just like hugged each other. And that was the first time I'd seen Blade in like years. And so it was just such an emotional, an emotional moment. It's a lovely photo. It's wonderful. Yeah. We were like, let's take a picture. And then as soon as we took the picture, she's like, I found my Sherry. (laughs) And it was just such an emotional reunion. We've been in touch ever since. We went to dinner and we're doing this now. It was, it was meant to happen, don't you think? When I saw it, yeah, the thing that just got me, just, just the warmth between you guys. It's always been there from yeah. day one. It's always yeah. been there. There were several aspects uh, of our, our lives that, that intertwined. So we did have a lot of time to spend together and socialize. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes, Lisa and I would spend time together both in studio and socially, but not necessarily during the time of Resident Evil 2. But since then, absolutely. <laughs> I would hope not taking a 15 year old girl out drinking. No, <laughs> not at all. No. <laughs> It would be like, you know, let's go have coffee, let's go have lunch. And then and then you have to understand, like, the 15-year-old girl remained friends until I was in my 20s and now in my 30s. So, of course, there were some drinks along the way. <laughs> <laughs> now, Bloody Eye from Missouri, he asks, Alison and Nisa, what do you feel you brought to the characters of Claire Redfield and Sherry Birkin? which ties in with a question from Alan Wempe Mao from New York, who also would like to know what influences did you bring to your respective roles? At the time when I I was not familiar with the game franchise, I was doing a lot of cartoon work at the time, certainly X-Men, but I was also traveling around promoting the big comfy couch. So being the the face and the, the poster child for a preschool show was very heavily ingrained in me at that time. So I guess in terms of what I might have brought to the role, I don't want to say a lightheartedness. I think, if anything, I brought a lot of attitude (laughs) to the role. But it wasn't just like the brash, I'm tough as nails attitude. The Claire that I really enjoyed voicing was someone who wasn't like every other video game character. She was a regular person with a good heart her own skill set that wasn't necessarily high-grade military training, but very much a fish out of water in the circumstances that face her in Raccoon City. And I love that aspect of Claire because I find that, you know, as things have continued, where we find Claire now, if I can reference the the online meme of Grumpy Claire, (laughs) which I thought was hilarious. I've watched Grumpy Claire. It is hilarious. Well, apparently when they released the the image of what Claire was going to look like in um, 
Revelations 2. Oh, yes. Which I did not voice. It instantly hit as Grumpy Claire. And I do, I have to say, I think, I thank the game makers for not continuing to use my face, but have it voiced by somebody else, because that would be just kind of icky. So I appreciate that they, they did give her a very different look. I have no doubt that the voice actor that they hired to do Claire did a great job. I am sure that she did an awesome job and, and did what she was directed to do. I want continuity, and I think it ruins the integrity of the characters when they recast. Well, I, I brought my own personality, which I think if I had known the importance of the franchise, I probably would have taken it too seriously at the time. What's nice, and certainly as a horror fan, like I've always been obsessed with horror movies, so I did bring that to the performance as well. But it, it, it was a lightheartedness in the moments where you could have lightheartedness that I think was essential to developing Claire's character and kind of setting her apart from other female characters in the franchise and in video games in general. There is... There's this tendency to push female characters into this one area of super badass. She has to just be super tough and like killer instincts and always uber serious. And I like the fact that Claire, when I had a chance to voice her, she had opportunities to convey different sides of her personality. <sighs> I'm finally here. Hello? Is anyone here? Hello? Uh, hello? <gasps> Look, I'm sorry I bothered you, okay? Just don't come any closer. Are you listening? Radio's out. You're a cop, right? Yeah. First day on the job. Great, huh? Name's Leon Kennedy. Nice to meet you. Mine's Claire. Claire Redfield. I came to find my brother, Chris. Claire. Claire. Tough girls like you didn't get worried. <laughs> what happened? How did you get here? Leon contacted me. Leon? You know him? Yeah. He tracked me down right after you went missing. Look, Claire, 
We can talk about this later, but we gotta get out of here first. Wait, Steve, he's here somewhere. We can't leave without him. The auditioning process was quite lengthy, and I feel that whatever I brought to it was what the producers wanted Sherry to convey in the game. And going back to the emotions I felt with the heavy points in the game and the dialogue, I think I brought the emotion of the child. But as an actress, I was precocious enough to have that emotional depth to bring to it. I don't know if a lot of the other people that they auditioned could get to that point truthfully. So I think that is what they were looking in the sherry was like that human touch that is hard to get from a genuinely young actress. So I think I brought the emotional depth that they were looking for, accompanied by my youthful voice. Especially with the dad and stuff. This is getting a little bit personal, but I was raised by a single mom. And I think, like, being involved in this game where the narration was like, you know, I'm losing my father. I think that I was able to draw upon make a connection there. Like, I never like to use my personal life in any of the work I do. I believe it's all imagination-based. But knowing what I knew growing up without a father, it did help me connect to the circumstances as well. And I think that's what I brought to it. And I think that's why there was such a truthful performance. That's a wonderful answer, and thank you for going so personal. (laughs) We have a member, Samuel Edge, brought that point up wanted to know actually whether there was a connection with something more personal in your upbringing because they could certainly hear that emotion in your delivery. You're welcome. Thank you for the wonderful questions. These are amazing questions, guys. All right, this one comes from Fletcher C. from Germany and J.C. Wesker from Bristol, England. They ask, were you given any concept artwork of Claire and Sherry with which to draw inspiration from? If not... How did you personally envision these characters in your mind with only dialogue to work with? We were given, well, I was given storyboard outlines and I knew that she was blonde and I knew the outfit of her costume. So I knew she was Caucasian. Um, It did help a lot. Mm. It might seem like a really simple detail, like, oh, it's just the difference of color of hair. It really did help. The illustrations did help. When I was going in through the first rounds of auditions and stuff, I just knew that this girl was 11 years old and I just knew her backstory. So that's what I brought into it. I made her as close to me as possible. Mm. Um, so I didn't assume anything about how she would look, but I just assumed like, okay, this is her age. This is what she's going through. So I think the storyboards really did help connect that last piece of like craft work that I could do to bring to this story. It is, it's really imperative to know what your characters look like. I've always been quite exasperated in these interviews when we've heard artists playing very deep, long-standing characters with huge fan bases and they're given very, very little biography and and we don't always hear that they're given the concept art. So it's not always about production values. It's great to hear that you were given that concept art. Yes. I was given it in the studio. Initially, I wasn't given concept art because I think they were still undergoing the change from Elsa Walker to Claire. They did change her fairly drastically. She was blonde and she wore blue and pink. We have had a question that comes on to, there's a demo of Resident Evil 2 before it became Resident Evil 2. 
colloquially entitled Resident Evil 1.5. Both of your characters appear in that game. You've got Sherry and then you've got Claire, who's entitled Elsa Walker. We had many fans who wanted to know whether you guys were asked to give dialogue for that, that Resident Evil 1.5 demo. By the time it got to us, it was Claire. It was pretty much as you know it to be now. And it was Claire and Sherry. I never recorded for a character named Elsa Walker. I've only ever voiced Claire. But they were still working at the details for for what Claire was going to look like. So I didn't actually get to see any art of Claire until they came back for the pickup session. Now, this question, again from JC Wesker, I can assure you, even though he's from Bristol, there was no favouritism at all. Um, (laughs) Alison, you've had the opportunity to play the character of Claire Redfield across multiple Resident Evil titles. Resident Evil 2, Code Veronica, Degeneration, and Darkseid Chronicles. And I would just like to say that with each title, you have exhibited so many inspiring qualities. And in doing so, you have given Claire a personality where both vulnerability and strength are in perfect balance. But also a consistency that has shown a delightful progress through the years. How do you feel Claire has progressed as a character and what did you bring to the performance with each subsequent reprisal, knowing what Claire had experienced previously? Well, first of all, thank you very much for the uh, the question and the way that it's phrased and the accolades. That's very kind. It's been a great privilege, but it's also been frustrating. And I know it's been frustrating for fans, too, because we did... The two games, we did RE2 and we did Code Veronica. And then the movie was really the only next installment. Everything else was sort of a, like a, a oh, side. That's a very good point. I didn't appreciate, of course. Yeah, it was side story or it was going back and basically telling the same story again, but just in a different way and a different style of gameplay. Yes. So I didn't have as many opportunities to really progress the character as I would have liked. But Degeneration was a great opportunity because the movie still allowed Claire to not only have matured and gained more life experience, but they really did allow the character to bring out some of those classic qualities that we all love about her, which is her sense of humor. Again, fish out of water. She's in a situation where she's actually having to use an umbrella, right? Like there was humor there was intensity. There was Claire's ability to just kind of keep her her sense of humor and her wits about her in a very very stressful situation. And so I'm I'm really glad that we got to do that movie. Where's Frederick? Dead. No vaccine data. No nothing. The same as Raccoon City. What? Frederick said it. Even you couldn't convince countries to invest in the development of the insufficiently researched G-Virus. What are you talking about? You know, at first, I didn't suspect you were connected with this terrorism, if for no other reason than you were in the airport terminal when the event occurred. But you had a motive for causing all this. Stocks. Will Pharma stock tanked. Because of our accusations, you were afraid that the situation would turn out the same as it did for Umbrella Corporation. So you needed an excuse to use the vaccine. Now, wait a minute. Yes, I'm a stockholder. And Will Pharma should regain the public's faith after this incident. But there's no way in hell I would support terrorism to ensure that. 
First of all, what is the G-Virus? I've never even heard of it! I know you ordered Frederick to dispose of the G-Virus when you called him. I told him not to show you anything more than you needed to see. That was it. I doubt he knows anything. Leon. General Grande's communication man talked. It seems that all of us, the Senator included, were fooled by him. Who are you talking about? Frederick, where are you? In level four. Why? You said you were going to the server room. I saw someone suspicious on my way there and followed him. You need to get out of here. There's a time bomb here. It's already too late to stop it. We'll have another biohazard if this thing... It can't be. Since then, things have been pushed into a very serious, almost humorless aspect with the character. That's a good word to use, humorless. Yeah, and that's, I guess... I don't own the character. It's it's Capcom's choice, and if that's the direction they want to go with her, but I I think that there's there's maybe something missing from mm. from what we loved about her originally. It was just so wonderful when Capcom produced this CGI film that was an official Resident Evil title that doesn't, like other non-official films, harm the integrity of the series. But so wonderful that, and like cemented the, the authority of it, that you returned to voice Claire. And whenever I, someone says to me, oh, you like Resident Evil? Oh, you must know those Paul Anson films. And my, I just want the floor to swallow me up. I just think about Degeneration and the fact that the returning cast members and Alison Court voiced Claire and all is well in the world again. Well, uh, thank you. <laughs> I was actually, I was incredibly surprised when they got back in touch with me after low those many years yeah. to voice her for the movie. So it was... Um, I was pleasantly surprised. It was a great opportunity, and I'm really thankful because I really like the movie. I gotta tell you, like, I'm really proud of how it turned out. That you were there, as I say, it really kind of gave authority to the film. But no, it is actually, it's a well-scripted, quite mature, well-rounded film. I'm a big fan of G-Generation, and it was a huge hit amongst the fans. Yay! Um, and as a, like, a little fan moment for me, I don't know if you're aware that the voice director was Mary McGlynn. I'm a huge Ghost in the Shell fan, so it was weird because I was in a studio in Toronto and we were doing an ISDN phone patch thing. She was in L.A. directing me from there, and I would just hear this voice through the headset, and I was like, okay, I just have to say in between takes, like, I love your voice. Who are you? I know your voice. She named a few things, and then she said Ghost in the Shell, and it was just like I had one of those moments where it's like, oh, my God. <laughs> and she went on to voice Alex Wesker in the Resident Evil series. Well, in Revelations 2, in fact. She also voiced Aunt in Degeneration. Yeah, I mean, she's awesome, and it was a great opportunity to, to work with her. James Marcus from Columbia, he says, I was devastated. I was devastated when I learned Allison had not been chosen to reprise her role as Claire, and the same for Lisa in Resident Evil 6. Has Capcom make amends for this remake of Resident Evil 2? I had no idea, and I was never notified, and I think it's as simple as that. We hear this regularly, don't we, Oracle, that when remakes, particularly this is happening at the moment with the HD remake of One and then of Zero, quite often the first the actors will hear about it is, is when they you know put on YouTube and see that there's a trailer. <laughs> you know, honestly, I I think that I'm not that hard to find, 
And if it's up to the producers and they have a vision of it, I'm asked that. I would greatly love to do it because of what I've heard from the fans. They would love that. But this is really the sole reason why I agreed to do this interview or this podcast, really, because it doesn't feel like an interview. It just feels like a bunch of good friends having a good chat. Oh, wow. Thank you. And I, and yeah, you're welcome. And I really love this question because the last thing I would ever want to do is offend any of my fans that have followed me for over 20 years. And it just breaks my heart that there are some people out there who might have the assumption that I don't want to be a part of it. No, it's just a simple, clear answer that I've never been asked back. That's it. And well, and all, all the poor of the games, Resident Evil 6, without being too contentious, I think you guys will be quite happy. Fans of yours will certainly be heartened that you're not associated with a game which doesn't live long in our memories. I think, honestly, at this point, with Resident Evil 2, without the fans, it needs to be recognised um, that without the fans, it would not be worldwide recognized and it wouldn't be as successful as it is and i think that whoever goes on to continue this legacy needs to keep in mind it's the fans it's the audience so with not returning as lisa incredibly eloquently put it oh allison you did i was also not contacted for the next game and it was it was the fans who actually brought my attention to it. And we kind of waited to hear and see what was going on. And then sure enough, it came out as it was. But I got to tell you that the outpouring of support was pretty incredible because it's one of those things, as an actor, you kind of, you learn to let things go. You can't be possessive because that's just not the way that this industry works. So when a new Claire came out, I was like, okay, well, they're moving on with the franchise. Hopefully, this is a good thing for the fans. Hopefully, this means that they're going to develop the character further and take it into a very interesting direction. But the response that I got back was that it was quite the opposite. It was very uh, heartwarming, I guess, to to see the and receive the outpouring from fans and and the response to the game. I don't get to have any real emotions about it because I I never. I can't get mad at not being asked, but like what I do get a little bit emotional about is not giving the fans what they want. And yes, I know that there's a big, huge following with your fan base and stuff, but I don't know if that gets to the ears of the powers that be. I understand that you guys can come to me and say you wish me there, but I am not the person who makes the decision. So what you might have to do to have an impact on this upcoming production is maybe try to find out who the powers that be are and let them know how you feel about both Allison and myself. Um, That's all I had to say about it. Thank you, Lisa. Well, I I was heartened to hear from Allison that certain contact has been made. Mm -hmm. I know with our growing significance and our significance as a site only grows because of the wondrous generosity of you, the artist coming on board Mm. and giving us the extra exposure that then allows us to reach out to people, for example, like Capcom UK. Yes. Yeah. The, the, the huge 
desire to see Resident Evil 2 made correctly. And one of the main ways that can be made correctly is to bring back the artist that made it so successful in the first place. Yes, okay. Well, thank you. I just wanted to reassure your audience that it's not from a lack of want from my end. Claire? Oh, you're finally awake. Isn't this... That's okay. You keep it. I'm sure it'll keep you safe. Thank you, Claire. Even though I'm an only child, neither of my parents ever spent much time with me because of their work. I grew up alone, but now that you're with me, I finally have someone to rely upon. <laughs> Sherry... Rest here for a bit. I'll be right back, as soon as I found the antidote for you. As Lisa was saying with RE2, it strikes me that the whole reason you would finally want to do a remake for Resident Evil 2 is that since day one, it's been arguably the best installment of this entire franchise. It's been the most fractured response because in, in terms of all the other, the other remakes for Resident Evil Zero and for Resident Evil, it's just been a very positive response. It's quite interesting that with Resident Evil 2, there's so many people that are so worried. Why mess with perfection? You're only going to make something that's inferior to this. Right. So I guess what I would say with that, and it's like what they do whenever they remake a TV property or a movie, the original will always be there. So let's be thankful that regardless of what they do with this remake, we always have the original one to play yeah. and we can, we can completely ignore the remake. It comes out and it's total crap. Are you all right? What happened? Get away from me. You just want my husband's G sample, don't you? But no one will take that away from me. No one. Husband? Then you must be Annette. Huh? How did you? We don't have time for that. Sherry is lost somewhere in the sewer system. I have to find her. What? I told her to go to the police building. Why is she here? Now Sherry and the G-Sample are both in danger. Uh. What did she mean by that? Does Sherry have the G sample? It's still its early days because they've switched the order of things around and now they're focusing on, and I gotta tell you, I am really, really excited with what's coming out with the VR for Resident Evil 7. Yes, um, yes. I've made myself a strict promise that in the interest of time for you guys, I'm not allowed to mention Resident Evil 7. Well, I just went there and I got to tell you, I'm <laughs> pooping my pants. I am so excited because I've wanted Resident Evil to go there for so long. Well, basically with virtual reality, my only interest in virtual reality was if we made a horror game. I'm a huge Doctor Who fan, so I would love to make a Weeping Angels game for, for Oh my VR. word. Are you just hearing that idea? Like, it would be so good. Yeah, just the fact that you're a Doctor Who fan. I've just had to shut down in my mind about a thousand questions that came into my brain and then, no, not now. Yeah, future, future podcast. <laughs> take it away. Because the Weeping Angel is interesting. I just want to say it's one of my favourite episodes and it's interesting that he doesn't actually appear in the first Weeping Angel. He's hardly in it, the Doctor. Dream. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Sorry, Lisa, I'm not going to get nerdy in a Doctor Who, sorry. Oh, I love Doctor um, Who. I, got, I haven't gotten into the new ones, but we used to watch the old ones. So, uh, with regard to the remake, I want to let fans know that when the word first got put out, that it was going to be remade, and that YouTube video was, was posted, and everybody started sending me messages and whatnot, that was awesome. The fans were amazing, and clearly they had an impact both with the feedback from the Grumpy Claire game <laughs> and the announcement of Remake, because all I can say is that Capcom Japan initially reached out, okay? And I think they felt a lot of pressure from fans to reach out to me. Sorry, with regard to Revelations 2? No, with regard to the Remake. Oh, wow. This is this is breaking news. So, I, but, well, I'm not going to go any further. No. Uh, all I can say is that thanks to fans, Capcom did certainly feel pressured into at least extending contact. Okay? okay. So that, there is more to the story. I'm not going to go there right now. Yeah. But uh, your fans listening certainly need to know that they they were heard insofar as the initial contact was made. And for anybody who thinks that Claire was was cast with a different actor because I said no, that is not the case. As Lisa pointed out, we simply weren't contacted. Absolutely not. Revelations 2 is in the past, but just in terms of a development stage, would Capcom have already now contacted the voice artist that they may require for Resident Evil 2? Do you think it's at a stage where they would have already contacted? Um, what I will tell you is that it's not Capcom making that decision. The way that it works Different companies get the contract to do different things. It's like subcontracted out. That's right. I can tell you that that would likely be a big part of why Lisa and I weren't brought back. Am I thinking on a naive level to get frustrated when I think it doesn't matter how large and multinational a company is, there's going to be executive producers and creative directors that are going to want the product to have a certain integrity. And Capcom, the custodian of Resident Evil, would they not want to have this continuity for the fans? I, I can't understand why, or is that just thinking rather naively? And is it really just simply down to, you know, pounds and dollars? At the end of the day, the dollar matters. But when you subcontract things, you're not always aware of where the dollar is going. So it's very easy to say, oh, these voice actors are too expensive or, or whatnot, because that's a third party that you've contracted out to, and you don't know how expensive voice actors might be. But at the end of the day, if you're the producer in charge of remaking one of the most successful games in video game history, I think you've got a lot more on your plate than simply worrying about the voice talent. He's got so much to worry about right now. Mm -hmm. um, because as you were saying, the fans are really, they're very particular with this game. There's the whole question of, do you remake the game just with better load time and interface and whatnot, but do you keep the everything else the same, which means you're going to have fixed cameras? And I think they've already addressed that. They said that there's not going to be fixed cameras, right? I'm obsessed with fixed camera angle, static cameras. I'm regularly told at the moment that I'm living in a dream world if I think that Capcom would produce a game in 2017 with fixed camera angles. The suggestion is that modern gamers will not go nowhere near a game like that. I share, certainly when it comes to horror, I, I share your opinion that I think there is something to be said with a fixed camera angle. You, you're adding to the ambience. Mm. 
I thought Capcom had announced that they're not going to have fixed cameras for the remake. Before I go down the rabbit hole any further, yeah. <laughs> um, let me hand it over to Lisa, because Lisa, I know, has a really good answer for this stuff, too. Well, thank you for the question. That's a great question. And I can answer it from two perspectives. And I'm just going to echo what Allison said from the production point of view. There's absolutely no ill feelings towards Capcom or any of the producers. Like, we have to understand that they have a huge job ahead of them. This is one of the biggest, most important games that is going to be remade. And so by the time, and this is when I was first initially cast, again, like back in the day, it's like by the time it gets to choosing the actors and everything, there's like a trickle down effect, you know, like there's budget is there's budgeting, there's all of this other mastermind that goes into it. And by the time it gets to the actors. That's when, like, the ball is just about to roll. You know what I mean? So from having produced some projects myself, it's like the actors are kind of last on the totem pole to get the fit right. And so I can't be upset. They have so many other things on their mind. And also there are so many people behind the scenes. And I don't think maybe everybody's aware of, like, the fan base. That's answering from like a production and that is all assumptions. I don't know any of that for a fact. I just know that based on my own producing experience, that's where I'm going to go with that. Then there's a part of me, Lisa, that thinks naively like you, where it's all about the fans, man. It's about the audience and it's about getting Mm. what they want, giving the audience what they want, because these are the people who have made it. Mm. so successful and these are the people who are going to be buying it so wouldn't you listen to your fan base but i guess word of mouth hasn't reached the powers that be we need the fans to rally and stuff like that but now this just sounds like i just want a job so i got to be really careful in how i address this question i too share the same view as you george is like i do really wish that the fans were respected and yeah. their wishes were come true. So that is a really good question. Well, I think it goes to the standard of the product, that it isn't just some throwaway Call of Duty game, mindless combat. That's right. There is a rich narrative. And so you get... I'm not suggesting that the fans of Resident Evil are any more intelligent or worthy of a quality product than someone that likes that combat style of game, but I just think that it means that we hold value and we hold in great affection these characters, and so there is then the connection with yourselves, the actresses and the actors who play these characters, and you bring a level of profession to this genre that I think is worthy of you being recast. Right. It's a great frustration when you're not, and I think it does harm the integrity of the Right, and you hit the nail right on the head that there is an affection, and we're all in this kind of together, and it's a journey we have all made Mm. together, a 20-year journey. So I don't think it's actually naive at all, and I don't think you're making, like, wrong assumptions and stuff. I think, like, you got to applaud the people who have been holding us in such an affectionate light for 20 years. That's a lot to speak of. There's another aspect to this, which um, it's interesting. Culturally, when you look at Japan, they're really very loyal to their voice actors. When it comes to the games, it will be the same voice actor who's done it the entire time. And they're beloved and they're treated with a certain respect. But what happens is when you subcontract it to a company in the States, their priorities are slightly different. So they don't have that same understanding of fan loyalty. That's what's happened with Resident Evil. 
we had so many of your fans expressing this concern about Resident Evil 2 and also wanting to express their sentiment that they were so disappointed that Lisa wasn't in Resident Evil 6. Morpheus Duval from Brazil, Alan Wenpei Mao from New Jersey, and Nemesis also from Brazil, and Ashley Vala, amongst many, all huge fans of yours, made similar impassioned pleas and were desperate to see you both return to your roles that you are so iconically associated with, and they posted this sentiment repeatedly at our site. Biohazard Valkyrie had asked, did you guys expect such a huge fan backlash to your respective criminal uh, emissions? (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Your respective criminal emissions. And just lastly, Hank Foreman goes further to inquire of Alison her thoughts on the portrayal of Claire in Revelations 2, asking, what's your opinion of this portrayal by an alternative actress mysteriously named James Baker in the credits, who we believe to be known as Danielle Nicolette? I have not played the game. I've avoided it because I don't... I don't want to have feelings one way or the other. I am confident that she did a good performance. I have no doubt that she's a strong voice actor. That said, the bits that I have seen, not her performance, but what they've done with the character just seems seems a little derivative and kind of cliche and a little lacking in terms of Claire's true spirit. I found it particularly frustrating that this was a welcome long-awaited return to a survival horror style what better way again to cement that as a Resident Evil title to hold up with a main title give it the authority of having yourself voicing Claire so this is from George Trevor myself from the west country of England Alison you were recast to play Claire Redfield two years after your debut for one of my most favorite Resident Evil games Code Veronica that you were recast, I and many feel, adds both integrity and depth to the character. Were you given by Capcom a biography brief relating to Claire's character development on from Resident Evil 2? And mindful we have taken up so much of your free time already, could I quickly ask you for a brief Code Veronica retrospective in relation to your experiences on what many believe was the last true Resident Evil survival horror game? Yes, Capcom did give me information in terms of filling in the gaps between the end of Resident Evil 2 and where we find Claire at the beginning of the game with the prison uh, on the island. So there was some backstory because obviously she's she's a little bit grittier when we find her in Code Veronica. So yeah, they they were good at giving me a a sense of who she was now as a character and, and how far she'd come. Um, but they were also still very adamant that she didn't lose that, that spirit that she had from the beginning. And in terms of a retrospective with Code Veronica, I think we need to do a different podcast. There's lots to talk about, certainly working with the other actors in the booth and working with the Sega guys and yeah. the team from Capcom. They were also recording Resident Evil 3 at the same time. Yes. So there's lots to talk about there. And lots of personal stuff to go on because, of course, Code Veronica leads then into my marriage and everything else like that. So that would be a conversation for a different podcast. (laughs) Yeah, well, stay tuned, listeners. Yeah, maybe that's something we can bring in the future. Okay, so on to the next question we have here for Lisa. And this question comes from Crimson Elder. Lisa, two years after your work on Resident Evil 2, you recorded some lines for Dino Crisis, again with Capcom. 
since those two games, you seemed to have moved away from video game voiceover. Is there any particular reason why? Thank you, Crimson. Thank you for that question. When it comes to auditioning stuff, I don't get the choice in in what I audition for. I get the breakdowns and stuff. And I guess after that, um, and by that time, I had taken a personal liking to doing video games because, like, it kind of gave me a lot of street cred. <laughs> <laughs> as long as you convinced the people it was you, though, with your friends. <laughs> exactly. And I would love to do video games again. But again, it's like I don't have the choice in what auditions come my way. Now, again, if there are games out there that auditions come my way or if roles come my way, I would love it. I didn't walk away. They sort of dried up, I guess. Didn't come my way anymore. Yeah. Yeah, the industry changed here mm. for a while. Mm-hmm. And can I add to that? One thing I would have loved to do is I would just love to do like a meet and greet with the fans. I would love to go to Comic-Con or something. And those things never came my way. And again, like I don't have the connections to the powers that be to say these things. So I don't know how it happens. I don't know how actors end up there. But these are things that I genuinely would love to do. I would love to do more video games. And I would love to do meet and greets at Comic-Con or something like that. I would Mm. love these things. I'm very restricted on this little island over here in England, but I was going to say at the very least, I could certainly introduce Lisa to Capcom UK for when EGX, the largest European games con held in Birmingham. A dream for me would be Lisa voicing Sherry in Resident Evil 2, and we, we can get you down to EGX when Capcom UK promote Resident Evil 2. These are all of the things that I would love to go to and be there and greet the fans, but I have never been asked, ever. It's the games cons themselves that directly, yeah. I imagine, yeah. contact the artists. Yeah, through their agents, I suppose. Well, in states, I know a lot of voice actors have con agents. Uh, these hmm. are these are agents that actually specifically solicit these conventions and book them for their talent. Like it's such a strange thing. That in, is in strange. My mind. Yeah. I know. Doesn't it? It goes. It's so not Canadian. It's so murky. Yeah, it's so not Canadian. Like it goes against my Mm -hmm. sensibilities. Just it's like if somebody wants me there and they ask me to be there, I'm like, oh my gosh, that's so that's that's so lovely. Thank you for asking for me. Exactly. But the the idea of an agent like soliciting that work, no. When you say it's not Canadian at all, are you sort of drawing parallels with that sort of English reservation? Yeah. Um, maybe opposed to an American direct bombastic approach. Right. <laughs> yeah, very much. We are we are very much we've got that that British sensibility of humility and mm-hmm. I don't know, awkwardness. So <laughs> mm-hmm. it's kind of ingrained in us to not self promote and to even yes. be like, Wait, what would you want me? Surely you want this other person over here. They're they're much more qualified. <laughs> yeah, it, it's a confidence, isn't it? Yeah. I wanted to add People know where to find me now. If these cons ever want me there, just reach out. All right, this one's from Crimson Outer. Allison, three years after Code Veronica X, you worked again with Capcom, but this time in a new role. For Resident Evil Outbreak, Files 1 and 2, are you listed as a voiceover director and motion capture director? Can you tell us about these roles? Yes. I was the voice director and motion capture director for everything that we did in Toronto. and. 
I guess when we talk about favorite game and inspiring game and all of those things, I've, I've named RE2 and I've, I've talked about Code Veronica as well for certain things. But I think possibly the one that I'm most proud of would be Outbreak just because it was, um, it was groundbreaking and a lot of what people kind of take for granted now in terms of their, their online multiplayer game systems. They have no idea what we went through with that first game. Everything was new. Capcom was kind of writing the, the roadmap with that game and working with the PlayStation 2 developers. So while it is a flawed game, I love it. I'm very, very proud of it. And I would love to see more files come out for it because we recorded a ton that game. There's so much that never actually came out as uh, levels that you could play. Now, that's fascinating to know. And again, I, I appreciate your answer. We'll have to be brief and hopefully we'll have a, an outbreak discussion at some point in the future. Yeah. With all these rumours, and even before the rumours of an HD remake of Outbreak, previously there's been huge demand for an Outbreak File 3. The fans have talked about how it would be quite easy for an Outbreak File 3 because of that dialogue that you mentioned. Fascinating to know just how much dialogue is in existence, particularly for those fans who are hoping for an Outbreak File 3. Mm-hmm. Absolutely right. It exists. I don't know who has it, but um, ostensibly it would be Capcom. The thing is, most of the producers, the original Fabulous Four teams that were at Capcom back in my day, they're gone. Those top producers are all at different companies now. So I don't know where that material would be, but it's there. It seems like a no-brainer. Even if you are going to do a remake, why not make some extra money by releasing things that you've already made to the fans when you know that the audience is there and they want it and they would happily pay for it? But I hope they do it because we recorded some really interesting stuff, some really good performances in there as well. There were some strange situations and some tough performance days and some difficulties with the motion capture. But we we pulled off motion capture stunts that nobody to this day is doing. And we were doing it with far less advanced technology than what they've got now. So that's my little yay, yay us and the Outbreak team. <laughs> <laughs> Bloody Eye, back again from Missouri. He wanted to know from Alison, as time has gone on, did you feel your performance has changed at all? If so, in what way? And did Capcom allow you to make adjustments in your performance as Claire over these years? Hmm. Uh, that's, a, that's a tricky one. Um, again, because there wasn't a lot of growth with the storyline for Claire, um, I, I guess I was limited in that capacity. And then when it came time to do degeneration, uh, of course the, it was, it was dubbing because they had done all the motion capture and there were placeholder lines. So that also had some restrictions in terms of the performance. But I think Capcom, certainly between Resident Evil 2 and Code Veronica, and degeneration for those three, they were very uh, on point with how her character would have developed, and they were mindful of what her growth would be, but also some of the integral aspects of her character that we never wanted to lose. Occasionally, I would ask if perhaps I could record an alt line, just in case that might be more to her character. I'm not sure how often that got used. 
I never, I never felt like I was looking at the character in a very different way than what the clients were. I think we were always on the same page when it came to Claire. Lisa, you must be very prized Toronto Unsung Hero Award winner. May I ask you, from George Trevor, more about your work in artists with disabilities and how this became a very personal, inspirational passion and cause for you. And do you find attitudes and opportunities amongst casting directors and others within the acting profession towards artists with disabilities differ around the world? That is an awesome question. I have never been asked such a great question. Wow. Thank you, George. <laughs> so I was diagnosed with rheumatoid arthritis at a very young age, and <laughs> we kind of kept it a secret. And at the time, I was not very happy about keeping it a secret. I was a child. You have to understand, I was a seven-year-old child, and I didn't understand the ways of the world. And when I was 18, I emancipated myself from my management, and I took over my business myself at the young age of 18. And I, and I went into Sandra Newton, my agent, her office, and I said, I have rheumatoid arthritis. And she was so receptive, so encouraging so supportive. I'll never forget that. But now this could be just me being a bitter old queen, or it could be a correct assumption. But when I came out of the closet, so to speak, in terms of my invisible disability, because I couldn't take the weight of lying about it anymore. I wanted to live my life openly and freely. And all the while that I was hiding my disability, I would still get jobs. But the moment I came out, so to speak, the phone stopped ringing. So that's when I hit a really low point in my life, personally, and um, in my work. And that is when I thought, okay, there's something wrong with me. There's something wrong with me. And I started with, that's when I started training, because I was like, okay, maybe it's my skill. I lack skill. Started at the Second City. Then I went on to New York and then LA. But in the mid-20s, I got so disgruntled, and I got so mind-fucked. I didn't know when to say, hey, I have these deformities, I walk with a limp, I have rheumatoid arthritis. I didn't know if I should mention it in the auditioning room after I, you know what I mean? It's just this whole mental thing. And I decided to quit acting professionally. I just thought it was just way too much of an uphill battle being disabled and having dis deformities. The day that you came to that conclusion in terms of and actually acted upon that decision, so I don't know, not pursuing certain roles, I mean, that must have just been an appalling day for you. It was a year to make that decision. It took me a year to come to that decision that like, okay, there's no market for me. I should have kept on lying, <laughs> you know, mm. and it's weird. It's like when you're open and you're honest, it's like, you know, I victimized myself. But anyhow... What happened was I ended up going to the Actra Awards, and I guess the Actra Awards are a very blessed place because that's where I reunited myself with Allison and got me in touch with Jenny Lazan. And Allison, you would know who Jenny Lazan is. She was grandma on Mr. Dressup. She was also my mind teacher at Claude Watson when I was in grade four. <laughs> oh, my gosh. That's awesome. So at this time, I had not really come to terms with being a disabled woman because I just hadn't been living in that truth long enough, but I was introduced and sat beside, I was sat beside Jenny Lazan, who at the time was the co-chairwoman of the diversity committee at Toronto. ACTRA, our union, 
and I went to a couple of meetings and then I realized like I can't quit the state the poor state of people with disabilities being misrepresented or not represented at all in our mainstream media made me realize okay it might be it might not be the same platform I had as a child I might not be as popular but I do have somewhat of a history and a platform to be a voice and the worst thing I could do see I thought I was just going to go back to U of T and become like you know someone in council or making a change through pa- pushing papers and bylaws but the worst thing I could have done was to quit because I already had my foot in the door and even though I wasn't getting work and calls and stuff like that I did have somewhat of a history a really successful history in acting I decided I prayed about it um I took a very long to decide and I was like okay I know that this is going to be hard I have no idea like at the time I only knew Michael J Fox as somebody who lived openly with his illness and I was like this is going to be really hard but this is something that I have to do mm. and then if it was something that I had to do I decided to be the best that I could be and that's what took me back to Stella Adler. How did I find myself being received? Well, obviously we know how Toronto panned out. Um Sandy Newton, I applaud her. She accepted me and it was great. But I had people in Toronto who said you're not going to go anywhere. You might as well quit. You better get used to it like right to my face. And that was heartbreaking. But then I went to Los Angeles and it's like my world opened up. like it just opened up for me and while i was in school i was not only politically involved but i was also like in a production playing a woman in a chair by cornerstone theater productions they had no problem with me being disabled and it was in the city of watts beside compton and i have lifelong friends that i'm still with friends today and i was doing that while i was in school full time and then like the theater world totally accepted me and so much so that I went on to being nominated as best ensemble for the last production I did at the Los Angeles 2015 Ovation Awards which is like the highest acclamation in theater in LA so in a very long 5 minute answer it's turned out to be the best thing I ever did it was hard and it's it's painful at times but it's the best thing best decision I ever did it was not to quit places that are more receptive to people with disabilities mm. and I have to say even before I went to Los Angeles I have to give it to Great Britain I have to give it to United Kingdom and the BBC ouch it's a radio program and they have um this um modeling agency that is specifically for models with uh diversity and they're called models of diversity and they're based in London I wish we had a branch out here in North America there's nothing like it wherever I've looked So hats off to Great Britain and then I would place Los Angeles and then sadly to say then Toronto. They need to be applauded for what they're doing. What they're doing is groundbreaking. They are like avant-garde. In 50 years we're going to look back and say if it wasn't for models of diversity, if it wasn't for BBC Radio, if it wasn't for Ouch, if it wasn't for the Vagrancy Theatre in Los Angeles, the Illyrian Players in Los Angeles, we wouldn't have XYZ. We have to applaud them. To your credit that 
you talk about an industry that's accepting you, but you've obviously had to make that very wise and dignified and extremely difficult step to not be negative about your situation. You've taken on a very positive attitude towards a disability, a challenge in your life, and that gives inspiration in all sorts of other areas. Um, the way that you've faced your disability I saw on your Twitter mm -hmm. you put up a video at a hospital and you weren't meant to be videoing I think you were videoing your your yeah. hands mm -hmm. I think you were being quite cheeky because I think you weren't meant to be recording <laughs> at the time I was being cheeky. <laughs> yeah and I just I saw that just in terms of a challenge in your life that you could have reacted to in a very different negative way I saw that and it kind of resonated with me and just made me think of say the the times the weaker times in my life when I've not dealt with my adversity in a particularly dignified way the way that you were dealing with that situation just inspired me to be more positive when maybe I might wallow because of a, a difficult challenge well of course that's a natural reaction George you know what I mean it is when you don't see yourself accepted and embraced and welcomed and integrated into pop culture or society in general, it is very easy to wallow and get mad and get angry. But the thing is, if you stay angry, stay mad, and you stay wallowing, where's the productivity in that? You know what I mean? We have, like, since we are at the forefront of change, it is good. We have the harder deck of hands to deal with, but it's just like we, we have to act as elders in the community and the wiser ones in the community. And we do have to put our feelings aside. It gets sad at times. It gets tiring at times, definitely tiring at times. But it's just like, who else is going to do it? Who else is going? Nope. I would never want to work or be around somebody who's negative, able-bodied or not. I'm never going to give somebody a chance just because they have a harder deck in life. You know, I want to work with and be surrounded by people who are positive. I'm not saying 24-7, but like positive outlook in this and that in life. You know, wouldn't, wouldn't you agree? It's not difficult to take the negative, the easy option. And, the, and, and absolutely, it's, it's much harder, but it's, it's much wiser. It's more dignified and it's much more fulfilling in the long term. Yeah, to, to respond in that positive way. All people from all mm -hmm. walks of life with disabilities mm -hmm. are going to be inspired when they see your performances. Aww, well, thank you. I hope it creates change. I don't really care about the acclamations or what I get. I just hope it, like the attention it brings opens more doors. That's what I want out of this. It was sitting with Lisa having lunch and mm -hmm. hearing about what you've been doing in LA and uh, the theater and the groups that you've been working with. And that was what made me finally, like, after mm -hmm. how many years, made the light bulb go off and say, wait a second, why the hell don't we have actors with physical disabilities doing voice work? Like, it's mm. a no-brainer. Why Why aren't we doing this? Um, and that's why we're going to actually do the, the workshops for our our actor members who do identify with a physical disability um, but have been completely neglected. This is the thing. Like, it's so... It's just so part of a, a business-as-usual mindset yeah. that you don't realize it until you do. And then once you do, it's awful. Like, it's <laughs> absolutely horrible. Yeah. But you start looking around and just starting to take a look at the littlest things that are are just taken for granted and completely people are completely cut off from and isolated from simply because of a mobility situation. And it's gross. 
So it does need to change. And George, whatever you can do to promote that, please do. And I have to admit, I have to applaud that like changes don't happen from just the physically diverse community. It's like Allison has seen me as a person all my life. And I think that's why the light bulb didn't go off until now, because I kept it a secret and talk about it. But the thing is, we need friends like Allison. We need allies. We need able-bodied allies. Do you know what I mean? And this has been true for any social movement that we've witnessed. You need the outside people yes. who are already on the inside to help. And so I applaud people with the mind frame of the likes of Sandy Newton, Pleasant Court, Caitlin Hart. I can go on and on. We need allies. And thank you, George, for bringing this up. It was really nice of you to do that. We've drawn to an end now. There were bonus questions, but we'll leave those for another time because you guys have been on here for three. Lisa, Alison, thank you so much. <laughs> We're into three hours. I could do this all night. We're taking advantage of you now, I think. Before we go, Alison, I don't know if I'm speaking for you, but like, do you want to mention anything that we're working on right now, Al? So for me, I can mention that I am voicing a series called Mysticons, which is going to come to air spring of 2017. And I will get you guys more information about it as we get closer to the air date. And then I'm voice directing a new series, but I can't say what it is. I was just going to ask you allowed, um, are you allowed to say the character you're playing in Mysticons? That's a really good question. I don't know if I'm allowed to say which one I am. So I'll be quiet for now. They've only released art as our silhouettes. Um, so, so I'm the tall one with the big poofy <laughs> hair. <laughs> oh, cool. That's so cool, Allison. <laughs> and Lisa. Me? Well, I was talking to my director, Caitlin Hart, again, and I'm thinking about it, but I might be in a production of the Scottish play, Macbeth. But it's just talking right now, and that would be in Los Angeles. And then I have this independent short film, which is in post-production, called Runaway Dream. So I'll let you guys know if that ever gets up and distributed. But that's something in the future. And then can I say to the fans where to reach me, George? Oh, absolutely, because I was going to say all Lisa Jai and Alison Court fans, please be assured, not just their Resident Evil work from the past, but as importantly, their present and future work and projects and associations. All these links, all these details will all be not just at the site when we publicise the podcast, but as an ongoing thing, we'll be very proud to say that we hope we have an ongoing friendship with Lisa and Alison. And so at times in the future, we'll be posting links as to where guys can enjoy your professional work. Thank you. On Twitter and Instagram, I'm at Crooked Fingers Girl. And on Facebook, you can find my page, Lisa J. And the only reason why I'm saying this personally is because I need friends and I love my Resident Evil 2 community. Oh, wow. <laughs> the outcry when you weren't recast as Sherry Birkin, not just for Dark Side Chronicles, but again, Resident Evil 6, you know, years, decades after, not wanting to make you feel old, you were very young at the time. Mm-hmm. Such a long time afterwards, I think really goes to show just what an impact and how beloved you are amongst the fans. And of course, to Alison. So if I can just say, for me, George Trevor, 
and Crimson Head Elder on behalf of the Resident Evil fans globally across the world. I cannot think of any partnership, any two actresses we would have wanted to have spoken to more. This 20th anniversary year of Resident Evil, this has been a very special privilege and a very special experience for me to be able to speak to you both. You've been particularly personal and shown a lot of consideration with your answers. Thank you very, very much. This will be edited down into a podcast. It's only fair your fans know that you've been speaking to us for over three hours. <laughs> from for me, it's only seemed like 10 minutes. For me, George Trevor, thank you so very, very much. You've responded to what was a cold call from a complete stranger from England, some cockney wide boy you've never heard of. Uh, thank you so... That's okay that you're a cockney boy because from what <laughs> I do know about my dad, his parents were cockney. So. Oh, okay. <laughs> well, hey, brother. <laughs> well, <laughs> thank you so much. And I could go on and on, so I better shut up. Over to Oracle. I want to thank Allison and Lisa for taking their time and joining us for the podcast and answering the questions from fans that adore their work and appreciate them. You two have honored us like many voice actors and actresses before. We thank you from the bottom of our hearts and hope you will come back again sometime in the future. Thank you, Oracle, and thank you, George, for giving me this opportunity to speak, and we will keep in touch. And I would like to say thank you, to George and the Oracle and your entire fan base for the fantastic questions, the continuing support, and uh, the interest in our lives almost 20 years after the time the game first came out. It's been a pleasure voicing characters and uh, getting to know the fans. That's been wonderful. So I really hope we get a chance to talk in the future. Come find us on Twitter. Love to everybody, and I will talk to you guys soon. And Aaron, Oracle, George, a.k.a. Paul, we will do another podcast soon, okay? Thank you so much, Oracle, and thank you so much, George, and thank you to all the wonderful questions, and we will keep in touch. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. You're welcome, guys. See ya. Good night. Bye. Wonderful.
doing? We have to stop the train, right? I can do it. But, but... Come and get me. I'm right here. Maybe this one? Sherry! Claire! Ah! <sighs> can't hold on much longer. Push the switch over there! Got it! <sighs> Finally. Are you okay, Sherry? I'm okay. Where's Leon? Leon? Leon! Right here. Leon! You're both safe. They just won't quit. Come on, we have to get out of here. Run! So, it's finally over. Sherry, you look terrible. No worse than you, Claire. That was a close one. That was pretty impressive back there, Sherry. It was nothing. I saw someone do that on TV once. Come on, we've got to move out. Now what's the problem? Is something following us? Hey, we still have a job to do. Let's go. Go? Oh, you can't mean. Chris, I have to find you. Can you see that area behind me beneath the red tinted sky? That is what's left of Raccoon City. Our platoon is cut off. No survivors found. I'd rather starve to death than here. We're both gonna die! Wait, don't shoot! Down! I lost all my men because of her! All is lost. Cries of agony. Spurs! Unity breeds power! 